But really now, there's, there's literally nothing to criticize about Biden except for these vibes. Welcome to another episode of America Explained, a podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Welcome to another episode of America Explained. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. It's now a week since the midterms happened, and we now finally have some kind of clarity over the shape of the results. It turned out to be a fantastic night for the Democrats, a terrible night for the Republicans. The Democrats have kept the Senate. They've barely lost control of the House. We don't know the exact margin there yet, but it's only going to be a couple of seats. Democrats also won key governor and secretary of state races in swing states. The states where we were concerned if Republicans controlled these positions, then they might try to create some kind of constitutional crisis in the 2024 presidential election. Democrats also expanded control at the state level all over the country. They fought off attempts to restrict abortion more severely and they fought off the challenge to American democracy. More than anything else, this is a vindication of Joe Biden, of his leadership and of his approach to politics. That's what we're going to talk about in today's episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. If you'd like the show, please tell a friend or consider subscribing to our free newsletter. You can find a link to that in the show notes. And in the latest edition, I expand a little bit on some of the themes in this episode and also talk about Biden's recent meeting with Xi Jinping in Indonesia. So, How did the Democrats pull out this fantastic result? According to all the models we have based on how previous midterms have turned out, the Democrats should have had a terrible night. Americans' perceptions of how the economy is going are very bad. Joe Biden actually has a very low approval rating. His approval rating right now is slightly below the rating that Trump had at this point in office. And just because in general, when you take these things and you combine them with the fact that midterms tend to be very difficult for the president's party, We would have expected the Democrats to lose something like 40 or 50 seats in the House in these elections. Now, the polls were already telling us that it was going to be a better night than that. They were showing a loss of somewhere in the region of 20 seats. But what actually happened was even so much, much less worse than that. It looks like Democrats will lose just about a dozen seats in the House. There was actually, for a time, it looked like they might keep control of the House, but that doesn't look likely now. But the Republicans are only going to have a majority of maybe one or two seats there, which is a phenomenal outcome. Nobody would have believed that if you said this was what was going to happen two weeks ago. And we now have enough information to to be able to tell a bit like why this happened. So the national polls turned out to be actually fairly correct. You know, the, there wasn't a, a huge hidden Republican vote or a huge hidden, hidden Democratic vote here. But what we saw was that there was substantial local variation. And this variation was basically correlated with the places where the Republicans had taken extreme positions either on abortion or on the future of American democracy. So it was a really interesting thing about this election that, that something that we call nationalization really decreased. Nationalization refers to the fact that over the previous few decades, more and more in every single election, Americans vote even in local and state races basically as if they were just a subset of national politics. So in, for instance, 2014, you could have predicted the outcome of every single governor's race in the country if you had just known how that state had voted in the presidential election two years earlier. This means that people weren't making their choices based on who they thought was going to be a better governor or whether the, you know, the candidates had positions that they liked on certain issues. 
They were purely voting on the basis of how they felt about the national parties. So if they liked Democrats, they voted for the Democratic governor candidates. If they liked Republicans, they voted for the Republican governor candidates. What we saw this time is that actually people voted much, much more on how they felt about local issues and state-level issues. And it was democracy and abortion that were the two biggest issues that were driving them to view candidates differently. So in states where abortion rights seemed to be on the line, where the Republicans had candidates or ballot initiatives that were pushing hardline positions, Democrats did much, much better. And similarly, when there were candidates on the Republican side who had questioned the integrity of the 2020 presidential election, or seemed like they were seeking power in order to monkey around with the 2024 presidential election, these candidates were punished by voters. They were, they were voted for at a lower rate than we would expect in this kind of nationalized environment that we've been living in for a long time, because voters looked at them and said, we don't want that in our state. And it was basically these dynamics that really damaged the Republicans in a lot of key swing states. And it also explains why Democrats struggled a little bit more in blue states. So if you look at, for instance, New York, New York was a place where the Democrats had a pretty bad midterms, actually. So Kathy Hochul, you know, she won re-election, but she didn't win a re-election by nearly as much as we would imagine, given how blue of a state New York is. And the Democrats lost six of the seven competitive House districts in New York as well. Now, that was a really big deal because that actually just the loss of those six seats is probably alone going to cost Democrats control of the house and there's a whole other thing about gerrymandering here because basically if the new york courts had allowed a democratic gerrymander to go ahead then the democrats probably would have kept those seats and then they would have kept control of the house but the important thing for understanding what happened last tuesday is that in a blue state like new york you didn't see this huge motivation for democrats to turn out and vote in favor of abortion rights or against the Republican attack on democracy, because that just didn't seem like a super relevant issue in New York. On the other hand, just over the border in Pennsylvania, which is a purple state, a swing state, a state where it's much more likely that Republicans might have been able to win key offices, Democrats turned out in, in big numbers and really, really crucially, and, and this was the really important thing that happened, independent voters and even some Republicans broke for the Democrats in order to block the election of those extreme candidates who had the potential to destroy abortion rights and to destroy American democracy. So uh, what is so interesting about these results to me is that it's actually such a vindication of Joe Biden's approach to politics. Ever since he started running in 2020, Joe Biden has said that he sees the potential to persuade independents and to persuade more reasonable, moderate Republican voters to break away from the extremism of Donald Trump's Republican Party. And he's been widely mocked for this, right? He's been told that he was out of touch, that he was kind of speaking to this issue from, you know, the vantage point of the 1970s when he entered politics, which is 50 years ago, if you can believe that. And, you know, he was told that it's just no longer realistic to expect that, you know, there are basically any reasonable Republican voters. But in this in these midterms, Biden's shown that actually this goal of stitching together a coalition that's in favor of democracy is, a, is something that can be accomplished, that there are actually enough voters in the middle and on the right 
who are disgusted by the direction of Donald Trump's Republican Party and who are willing to vote against it. So this is just a tremendous vindication of Biden's approach to politics, This the way that he's tried to appeal to these center and right-wing voters and to kind of build up this bulwark that defends American democracy. And Biden really emerges from these midterms enormously strengthened. The, the main problem that people have had with Biden over the last couple of years isn't actually really about his policy achievements or the way that he's guided American foreign policy, because he's been very successful by, by any objective criteria at achieving his goals in those two areas, right? I mean, this isn't a president like Donald Trump who set all a whole bunch of goals and then was completely incompetent at achieving them. Whether you agree with Biden or not, he has done what he said he was going to do. He's passed one of the most ambitious domestic agendas in decades, and he's also managed to hold together this coalition of Western countries in order to contain Russia and beat back Russia's invasion of Ukraine, something which, you know, is also going really, really well at the moment. Russia just withdrew its forces from the city of Kherson a few days after the midterm elections. They actually reportedly waited until after the midterms because they didn't want to give Biden a win by doing this beforehand. But okay, Biden did really well in the midterms. They withdrew from Kherson. And this is just another example of how how well the Biden administration's foreign policy is going. So the mo- the main problem that people have had with Biden isn't really policy, but it's just kind of these these questions about his age and about the kind of vibes that that creates around his presidency and whether it allows him to appear to be an effective leader. But really now, there's there's literally nothing to criticize about Biden except for these vibes. He's shown that he can pass an ambitious domestic agenda. He's proved very competent at handling American foreign policy. And he's also just led his party to what I would say are the third best results for a president in midterm elections since World War II. So, you know, Biden is just, uh, you know, um, emerging from this with his head held so high. He's in such a strong position to run again in 2024 if he wants to. That remains an open question, although I think that he probably will run again. And, you know, the fact that Trump emerges from these midterms so weakened and that Biden has beat him once before really puts Biden in this fantastic position to go into those that, that, that election in 2024 and beat Trump. Okay, so after the break, I'm going to come back and talk about the impact this has had on the GOP, which has been plunged into chaos by these very poor results. You're listening to America Explained, a podcast about the United States for an international audience. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, tell a friend, and leave a positive review on your podcast platform. (laughs) So the, the, the chaos in the Republican Party after these results has really been a sight to behold. Many commentators, many Republican politicians just cannot believe it. Actually, if you watched some of the um, podcast and kind of live streaming shows of MAGA commentators while these results have been announced, it was actually really, really funny. They just couldn't really wrap their heads around what was happening. Some of them were saying things like, you know, we realize now that we've been in a bubble, that we've become disconnected from the average American voter. Really reaching these realizations, which are things that I could have told them two or, you know, four years ago, but apparently, you know, it's taken repeated electoral drubbings for them to reach that conclusion themselves. But we're already seeing chaos across all kinds of different axes and areas in the Republican Party now. So, 
The most immediate thing that happened was that Kevin McCarthy, who had been hoping to sail into office as the next Speaker of the House of Representatives, is now facing a real uphill struggle to get um, control of that office. He already faced a challenge from Andy Biggs in an internal House uh, Republican caucus to become Speaker. Now, he beat off that challenge, but it showed that he is way, way short of the 218 votes that he needs to become Speaker. And McCarthy is probably going to have just a terrible time both trying to become Speaker and then if he succeeds, and I guess he probably will do eventually, but it will have a lot of problems holding together the Republican House caucus. Even House Republican speakers like John Burner and like Paul Ryan, who've had much bigger majorities, have found it really difficult to contain the kind of crazy extremist right-wing faction of the of the House, you know, the House Freedom Caucus, as they call themselves. And McCarthy's going to find this essentially impossible. He's going from day one to be pretty powerless. He's going to be constantly in hock to the right-wing of his own party. And that's going to just make it really difficult for the Republicans to really achieve anything with the House majority. And there's likely to be a lot of infighting that is not going to be particularly, you know, good for the for the American people, for the voters to see. It's not going to be a great advertisement for Republican rule going into the 2024 presidential election. We all should also should bear in mind that, I mean, there's a slim chance that the House might actually pass back into the control of the Democrats in the next two years. If the Republican majority ends up in just one or two votes, then it's not inconceivable that special elections, you know, these things that happen when a member dies or a member retires, might lead to democratic victories and then the House swinging back to the Democrats. So it's really going to be on a knife edge and make it very difficult for the Republicans to do anything, really, with with this majority in the House. In the Senate, we've also seen a challenge from Rick Scott to um, McConnell's continuation as the Senate Minority Leader. Now, this probably won't go anywhere. It's just another sign of kind of discontent in the ranks, another sign of these splits that are emerging in the party. But I think by far the biggest news in in this regard has been that we've seen over the last week, since these really catastrophic midterm results, that many Republican elites have started to blame Donald Trump and actually criticize him and distance themselves from him in a way that we haven't seen in a really, really long time. I think you would probably have to go back as far as the Access Hollywood video leaking in 2016 to remember remember a time when there seemed to be such criticism of Donald Trump in the Republican Party. Now, it's notable to see like where this criticism is coming from, and I think it's coming from two areas, and one of those is going to worry Trump more than the other. So the first place it's coming from is traditional moderate country club Republicans. So the Club for Growth, which is kind of the pressure group, the organization of pro-business, you know, capitalist republicanism, came out very strongly, criticized Trump, released polling, which it had done, saying that he was not a favored candidate in 2024, and other, you know, fairly kind of leading figures within this wing of the party, People like Chris Christie have also come out and criticized Trump and basically said that it's time for him to move on. Now, I'm not sure that this type of criticism or criticism coming from these types of people really worries Trump that much. These are the people that Trump just absolutely annihilated in 2016 when he first launched his hostile takeover of the Republican Party. That kind of traditional pro-business and, you know, anti-populist strain of the Republican Party, which the Club for Growth represents, is something that Trump has proved pretty adept at sweeping out of the way in the past. I think what will worry him more 
is that he's also starting to get criticism from within his own MAGA movement. And that criticism is very heavily focused on pointing out that now there seems to be a potential replacement for Donald Trump. And that guy of who, who they want to replace him is, of course, Ron DeSantis, who absolutely romps to victory in Florida by about 20 percentage points. This is a guy who, in his last election, only won by about half a point against Andrew Gillum in 2018. And he's managed in that time to, to, to go from half a percent to a 20% margin of victory. And he's seen by many Republicans as basically a competent version of Donald Trump. So he's just as aggressive as Trump. He shares many of the same policy priorities or, I mean, let's say at least cultural grievances, because I'm not really sure how much this has to do with policy. It's just more to do with criticizing the people that MAGA wants to see criticized. But this idea that DeSantis is a less tainted, you know, more competent, calmer, more collected version of Trump is, I think, the main threat that Trump faces right now. And Trump had planned actually just last night to give this kind of victory rally after the midterms at which he was going to emerge and take credit for all of the candidates who he'd endorsed, who'd done really well in the elections, and then he was going to announce his candidacy. Now, the midterms went terribly. Trump's candidates performed terribly. But Trump went ahead and gave this announcement speech anyway, and basically said, I'm going to run for the presidential uh, nomination in 2024. We're going to make America great again. You might have heard that slogan somewhere before. But this speech has been met by a distinct kind of lack of enthusiasm from these two sets of Republicans. Republican elites. But polls show that Trump still really, really maintains this grip on Republican voters. Nearly 50% of GOP voters want him to be the nominee. And it's an uphill struggle for anyone else, including Ron DeSantis, to break through that, really. You know, you've got to remember that if, if, if Trump has to run in a competitive primary, he's not going to just face one opponent. He's probably going to face half a dozen or more opponents from all different parts of the political spectrum, different parts of the country. And you have to say that, once again, the odds are him on him doing what he did in 2016, which was basically just to have the field against him be divided so much that he emerges the winner, even if he falls far short of a majority. And even at the moment, the polls are showing that nearly a majority of, of GOP voters want him to be the nominee anyway. So I think we have to say that, you know, Trump has overcome uprisings by Republican elites before. He tends to stamp them out extremely extremely effectively. It is notable to me that the people you see criticizing him openly at the moment aren't yet really the kind of top tier of Republican politicians. I mean, Christie, for instance, is not even in elected office right now. He doesn't have to worry about how his own primary electorate is going to take these remarks that he makes. So I, I still, there's a long way to go for me before I start to think that Trump's grip on the Republican Party is seriously threatened. And my money is still on him becoming the nominee in 2024. But things are in flux now. So my, my certainty about that is lower than it was. And we have to see what happens and who enters the race against him. And ironically, in a way, now that Trump and his positions and the candidates that he endorsed have been shown to be so weak, I feel a lot more optimistic even if he does remain the leader of the Republican Party. And this election in general just made me so much more optimistic about the direction that America is headed. It really showed that when the Republicans go too far, when they become too extreme, voters will push back. And it gives hope that Biden can defeat Trump in 2024. 
if Trump is the nominee that his party puts forward. So I find it strange to end this podcast on an optimistic note, but I'm really going to lean into that this time because I think that this was just a fantastically great night for the Democrats. And it was also just objectively a fantastically great night for America. Unless you really believe that America would be better off not being a democratic country, then you cannot help but just celebrate what happened here and the fact that this movement that was seeking to undermine and destroy America's democracy all in the service of of this deeply flawed and reprehensible character has been so comprehensively rejected by the American people. Thanks for listening to America Explained, which is brought to you by host Andy Gawthor and researcher, editorial assistant, and sometimes co-host Catherine Wood. If you like America Explained, please consider checking out our free newsletter, which you can find a link to in the show notes. That's all for this episode, and I look forward to speaking to you next time.